Hello, welcome to Beyond and Out, Northern Ireland's newest and greatest uh, political podcast. Uh, I would just like to say thank you for a great opening week. Um, the website over had one and a half thousand hits over the weekend, so we would just like to thank everybody who viewed it and engaged with it. Loads and loads of positive comments saying what we're doing is really good and people are really enjoying it. So I a really massive thank you to all our to all our viewers and listeners. We really appreciate that. And we also had a good amount of comments about other things that we could do and people disagreeing maybe on a point or two. And for those of you who are a wee bit critical of it, we have took those engagements on and we are going to look into them. A number of them being some of the UUP's uh, points and maybe they not as left as they seem to be, but that's what the data shows and, you know, on the, on the manifesto points, we're willing to look into them a bit more and maybe change it. But in terms of voting, we're keeping it the way it is. I think that those voting records really show a good, accurate display. So for the first week, that's, that's how this project's been going. And we just, again, want to thank everybody. But on today's podcast, podcast number one, I think this really is now, um, our first true serious one, we're going to be doing the analysis of the Democratic Unionist Party or the DUP. Um, in today's podcast, we're going to look into their manifesto, some interesting points within it, have a look at their voting history, what have they voted for, what have they voted against. And then we're also going to look into the makeup of the DUP and their grassroots element and how they became the largest party in Northern Ireland. And we'll talk about through their history and the rise of Ian Paisley and what he done for that party and then a good a good chunk will be on the post-1990, uh, post-Good Friday Agreement and how they maintain themselves as a leading dominant force of Indian Unionism. And then top it all off, we'll be talking about, well, what's next for the DUP after REHI and uh, arguably a wee bit of splitting within the party, uh, voting against starting Foster in July there. Um, how is that going to lead the DUP forward? So it's an exciting, exciting podcast today. I'll be hosting it myself, James Main, and as always, my trusty co-partner, founder, the man behind the stats, Matthew Spires. Lovely to be here. So I think we've got a lot on for today's podcast. So Matt, we're going to start off with analysis of the DEP. Who are the DEP? What do they stand for? And how do they think about themselves? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the, I suppose the most interesting point to start on is like the one which we came out most surprised by. Uh, I feel like it's obviously the, the fact that they came out somewhat slightly left. Uh, I mean, realistically, it's probably better described as centrist, but there was like slightly left uh, tendencies in their economic outlook. Um, I know someone pointed out whenever we were, whenever we did release this, I kind of points out that it's probably difficult for someone or for a political party in Northern Ireland to be left wing with the lack of uh, control we have over some economic aspects of our politics due to devolution. Uh, but I think it's still surprising whenever you look at a, at a party which somewhat mimics conservative values in their uh, in their general running and also in their kind of position on the national question that they come out somewhat left in an economic standpoint. Even if it's very soft left, they they obviously have right wing kind of positions on tax. They they are very open about the fact that they want lower VAT. They want the uh, they want the lower corporation tax as well. It, they're very much a party who want to kind of follow that neoliberal, I suppose, model of like lowering taxes and giving a wee bit more economic freedom to a free market. Um, but they do have some kind of left issues, which 
factor economic standpoint, which I think are usually more to do with ensuring they kind of keep a middle or a working class vote, maybe. But well, what are your thoughts on the their kind of position on that? Yeah, I, I find it really interesting. I find it interesting, but not surprising. They're very center to center left attitude when it came to the benefit system and that of OAPs, yeah. which, you know, most political parties tend to do look after their OAPs, mostly in right wing parties, because that's normally the sort of subsection of society that votes for them. But if it was policies like retaining the over 65 free bus and train uh, pass and also keeping benefits in line with inflation. And I remember reading that and thinking, if I heard the Labour Party over in Great Britain or down south or Fianna Foyle down south introducing this, say it didn't exist, but introducing it within their societies, I think a lot of people will be going, oh, that's quite left-leaning. That's, that's very interesting that they've went for this. So to see the DUP sort of come out with this very lefty sort of stance, it was, it was an interesting one to, to see and judge by. Yeah, I, I agree. I think they've... I guess it's not purely surprising because we knew that the DUP does definitely rely on kind of rely on like an older voting base. Um, I, I suppose I was surprised that they did kind of make that many allowances towards the kind of working class or the or well the perceived like you know kind of benefit system and the and the the old people just because usually parties who are in their kind of center right or right wing makeup don't usually make that many allowances even if they do uh even if they do have even if they do allow for some aspects of it they generally have like a core of it which is still very right wing and then they'll make a couple kind of deviations but the ep seem to very much have completely given i guess given the people what they want is probably the best way of saying it and i, I also wonder how much of the political realities and the the political system of Stormont, it trickles down to DUP policy. So, so what I'm trying to sta state here is the British government will give X amount of money to, the, to Stormont, to its relative departmental bodies to continue yeah. out whatever projects it's doing. And I wonder if the DUP treat the social care system the same way, i.e. we get X amount from from London, so we have to spend it. So if the more money we get, the more we should spend. Yes, which yeah. it's a it's a very lefty idea, really, to to keep spending government money and not to be tight. And I I don't want to say this is this might sound a bit biased, but physically responsible of it in a way. You know, it's it's a big slap into the face. Yeah. into what we traditionally see. You think that's maybe? You think maybe that's like an institutional byproduct, though that i mean we both kind of know and we've both probably seen on various occasions that whenever you give an, a government institution a set of money there's like a natural inclination no matter the ideology to spend that money because they know that by the time the next pay packet comes around or the next budget comes around if they don't spend all their money the government's going to look at that and say right we shouldn't give you as much because you don't need as much yeah definitely. so they spend it anyway if, if, if for anybody who is listening to this and you haven't read Sam McBride's book on the RHI scandal, I, he, he talks a lot about this, uh, about civil servants having this mentality that if, if London gives you 
X amount of money, you better spend it all so that you get the same next year or if not more. So I think that does trickle down into both, you know, basic civil service operations and also into policy. I completely agree, but then uh, I suppose it, it does conflict with that kind of social conservative stance, which they kind of position themselves themselves as. Uh, yeah, because I, I think it, it's probably very right. expected. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's even hard to say, do they have, yeah, do they have any kind of left-wing positions on social policy outside of maybe benefits? Um, I'm not sure. Maybe education. You can well, the, well, class in some ways as as that, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, in some regard, maybe education. But then again, they were the the party that was extremely critical of the eleven plus being changed and Sinn Fein trying to make that a yeah a more exactly. equal system as such. You know, and they very much, and I think they've taken a lot from maybe the old the old guard of the UUP on this, as in the pro- the garden centre Protestant mentality i.e those middle class upper class voters but also still retaining that very working class voters and maybe hurting their own base but for those politicians and the families they grew up in a lot of it probably has been middle class Protestants who had a decent family background who went to good schools and simply believe that system is the right way so I I wonder how much of that is in there as well and I understand there's going to be people listening to this saying if you're objectifying Northern Irish politics and the class-based system, you're missing out on some elements of it. And we, look, we truly understand that. But again, looking at it in a more class view, I think helps us give us another insight that often gets underrepresent, underrepresented here. So even while in education, yeah. they can be seen as somewhat left, I think there's still quite a lot of hard right undertones. I mean, the, the military factor and the kind of police uh, support are, are two points which they come out very strong in the manifesto there. We're quite clearly taking that kind of, uh, I mean, even after you just saying that, we don't want to be talking about unionism and nationalism, nationalism as much. I mean, it's, it's pretty a key part of a kind of unionist identity that you support the military and support the police service. Um, I think that comes yeah, through they, in their manifesto quite heavily. To, yeah. Some people might be a bit critical of me saying this, but the DUP definitely give me the same overtones as the Law and Justice Party in Poland. A lot of traditional based ideas on Christianity and implementing strong, yeah, strong points of hard justice. What what is the phrase you used to describe them, Matt? It's not the idea of. Um, they're more so focused on the punishment and not the journey after punishment. Retributive is what justice. Best describes. Yeah, retributive. Yes, retributive yeah. justice. Do you want to just explain that? Um, that's our, as opposed to restorative. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think also that brings you talking about the launches as part of that probably gives you an idea of what they're like in terms of like uh, gay marriage, uh, general LGBT issues in terms of like trans issues also. Their ideas on a on abortion, they they stick with the kind of idea that these are are things which are degrading society. They're they're things that they don't see as representing the 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 general populace. Uh, they don't want them to be a part of the politics. They see it as like it, yeah. it very much contributes to that kind of feeling that they're they're in keeping that kind of standard, but they're also fighting against a a dying light to some degree. 
Um, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting makeup here in the six counties when we look at when we look at the DUP's position on gay marriage and abortion. Obviously, they've been the strongest opponents of its advancements in this part of the world. Yeah. But I think we also have to be aware that while you know a, a large chunk of our society, if not the majority, view that as the wrong approach, there is still a very yeah. strong Christian element to uh, Northern Ireland or the North, which arguably Massive. did the DUP know, and it's their heartland, and they represent it very well. So I mean, within it's, Europe, it's, it's we're also, probably one of the strongest kind of Christian countries out there, realistically. Yeah, I think, and if you look at the likes of Poland, like not to keep bringing it back to the Law and Justice Party, but again, it's a party that's very much focused yeah. on that traditional Christian vote, and Arguably the same undertones as the DUP, fighting back. Yeah, I mean, the DUP does have quite a lot of similarities to to some Eastern European parties. These kind of, uh, they they come between somewhere between like centre right and far right. They're they're the the kind of parties that in well, I guess in Eastern Europe they're a a little bit more their appearance is a little bit more modern. But they, they definitely have this kind of idea of calling back to some feeling of Christianity, the Christian values that, that need to be implemented within society just for us to function as European countries. Um, even though the DUP obviously don't, don't believe necessarily that we're European. Um, but, but yeah, just before we, we head on to that kind of Euroscepticism for the DUP, and we can just like maybe answer this very quickly, do you think the manifesto was was representative of the DEP? Do you think it was accurate? I think it was fairly accurate. I, uh, bar, bar the audio economics stance, I remember reading it going, yes, that's very much reads like the DEP. But again, yeah. I think, again, this is another criticism of the site, and I don't blame people for it. It's We, we analysed only the points that were on the manifesto and not implement yeah. what wasn't there. And while I think that's fair, what isn't there can say a whole lot more. And I think this was the main problem with the DUP's manifesto. There was a lot of information I felt was missing. And one of the key topics that they just- I think it was quite purposely missing as well. Yeah, it was was environmental matters. And I don't think that should come as many surprise to people here when we we look at recently how the DUP have managed environmental schemes such as REHI, which is one of the key (laughs) factors. Definitely, we believe it brought down the stormant. A storm, the institution of Stormont. So it's a, it's quite an interesting one there, what they didn't say in that regard. Um, but yeah, we'll move on to Euroscepticism now and what they think there. Do you, uh, do you want to just brief people, Matt, what, they, what they're thinking there? Well, I'm going to hesitate to say that they don't like the EU. Um, <laughs> you, you, could, you could pretty much say they hate it. Uh, I think the issue is with the EU as well, that there's a very heavy part of it that is, there's a sectarian element at play where there's kind of that, that background play with Northern Irish politics of like, well, the Republic of Ireland's in the EU, the, the UK will no longer be in the EU. So therefore, if we're not in the EU and we have no connections with the EU, we'll, we'll be closer to the, the UK and farther away from the Republic, which is uh, definitely going to come into play in their Euroscepticism. Which is just me saying that because I, I don't want to act like there isn't the sectarian element into it. But then at the same time, I think you can look at them even on ideological grounds. Um, 
their kind of social conservatism. They're very much free market economics that they want a lot freer than the EU would ever allow. Um, and even like the way which they talk about like American, they're not wanting that, that American trade deal and stuff like that. That uh, I think that they're actually very much a natural kind of anti-EU party, even if it, it wasn't to do with the kind of national question. I think they've, they've kind of built themselves, especially if you look across Europe, the kind of Eurosceptic parties. They're, they're pretty much similar to those parties in many ways in terms of why they disagree with the EU. And it's not really surprising why they have then this big like uh, argument, which was massive in the UK referendum on, you know, wanting to take power back and all that kind of stuff. Because taking power back has been a massive part of the DUP's identity. I mean, since the Good Friday Agreement, realistically. Well, I think it's even more so but, yeah. interesting once you leave the confines of Stormont and it's and how the DUP have a couple of more left issues. As soon as they leave that and they're in the world of international politics, there there yeah. are more right wing elements come to the forefront on the on the economics, definitely more so. And the, the talk of free trade and free movement of goods beyond the EU is something I think they were very drawn to as well. So maybe there was yeah. an actual position there outside the confines of Stormont where they're like, that's fine. And they find definitely find their home base and home ground with the Conservative Party quite easily as well. Yeah. Because Northern Ireland, I don't think, actually has a lot of trade with non, non-Irish European countries, realistically. I, I do know we have, a, obviously, a very good chunk of trade with the Republic, but there's not a lot of trade with other European countries, I don't believe. Well, I, I think, think there I is think actually China a decent bit of trade the, with the, the US. Emerging, I think the emerging one is the US, not the US, but China is the emerging one. But again, yeah. for such a small for such a small state, you know, the EU, the EU was definitely the easiest route there, as long with GB and the Republic. Yeah. Yeah. So moving on from Euroscepticism to the founder of the DUP, there's only one man to really discuss. It's Reverend Ian Paisley, the preacher himself, who helped bring unionism into a new wave, a new a new movement as such. The DUP where it was his was his creation, a way to help in his eyes combat the rise of um, violent nationalism and to stir up the the unionist people to, in his words, fight back. Um, Paisley's a hard one to talk about because I think yeah. his name has a lot of emotion on both sides uh, in Northern Ireland and across the spectrum. I think when we're going to be talking about it here, here, we're going to be talking about him in the light of anecdotal evidence and academically. Yeah. Um, yeah. Matsy, when, when you think about Ian Paisley and reflect on what he did for the DUP and for unionism in general and his ideology, what, what, what comes to mind? For uh, you? That's, so it's not the easiest question I've been asked in a while. Um, <laughs> I think if I was being if I was being fair and reasonable, and if I was trying to take a, a good approach, I would have to say that I mean his evolution was somewhat um, admirable, I suppose, to some degree. You know, he, he starts out in politics as being this, to, to put it lightly, an extreme an extremist, um, and in his in his thoughts and in, in the way that he kind of approached his rhetoric, and certainly became kind of this uh, this this. Uh, I don't want to say exploiter, but uh, he 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 found this kind of populist, kind of in the same way that Trump kind of does this kind of populist 
feeling amongst the community and, and he very much kind of just prodded it. He kind of got that feeling and, and pushed it into a mainstream in politics, in Northern Irish politics. Um, it was possibly already there in mainstream. It just needed a, an actual political voice, um, which Paisley very much did. But then I think his actual, his, his progress throughout his time and, you know, it was very much a large kind of media presence around his relationship with Martin McGuinness. The fact that he, him and him, uh, Martin were very good friends by the end of his life uh, and that kind of softening of his approach I found somewhat admirable that someone can't change their opinion so much. But I, yeah, I, it's, uh, yeah. I think his, his yeah, Christian it's, values were also so influential on unionism, like uh, the, the way that he's kind of forced the Christianity into the DUP was, was a massive part of it as well. Yeah, yeah. I think Paisley and the religious element he definitely helped bring bring uh, reli- extreme religion or religious Christianity to the forefront of unionism. I think before it might have been definitely in the background, but he he definitely molded the DUP into this Christian giant of a party. And I don't think without him we would have seen such public displays of Christianity. Yeah. The likes of um Jonathan Bell doing that public prayer when whistleblowing on the RHI scandal and bringing that to the media and also the constant references to God and Ulster that many DUP politicians across the spectrum like to make. But I think if we look on on Paisley in a more left to right ideological front, obviously socially very, very right wing, even from the, the 60s, right. he was considered a bit of a, a bit old school. But I've heard anecdotally from a few pe- from people that grew up in that time and were in his constituency, you know, bread and butter social issues, he was quite left on. Really? And I, I, yeah. And I wonder if that's why the DUP are still mildly left on those issues today. Was due yeah. to his idea of the, you know, the bread and butter politics of life is people need the basics, and I wonder if that's still that, and I wonder if that continuation and his ideals are still firmly yeah. planted within the DUP today. I mean, we should say that it wasn't just that there's a very heavy populist angle to the DUP, but part of the populist angle is the fact that they're very good at being on the ground in their politics. They're very good at talking to people to their constituents. They're very good at, you know, answering constituents' issues and making sure that they're, you know, actually part of the community, which they're saying they're representing, uh, which maybe has been, was an issue for the, the UUP, the UUP at the time, whenever the DUP was really emerging, that they weren't maybe as quite as on the ground as the DUP was. Yeah. Uh, I I think the DUP have that image of being almost like the little guy at the start. They were very much little horse. The rejection of, yeah, the rejection of big house unionism as such as in, you know, we are the people, you know, and then obviously that's changed over the years to some regard, but. I mean, that makes them just like, I mean, the populist angle just really does get reaffirmed whenever you look at it, kind of these kind of issues, like it, or the, the, that kind of like angle, um, which I guess maybe explains their kind of mentality nowadays as well. Even though they are in leadership, they still want to present themselves as somewhat populist, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's also part of, you know, one of the drawbacks of the GFA and the Good Friday Agreement is that there was two sides that constantly have to be 
working with each other, but when it yeah. comes to elections, they're seen as against each other. Definitely. And it, it, it's a hard one to merger. And I think well, since, we're, since we're doing this whole podcast on the DUP, I think we should also say to our listeners, and I think for people of our age, we sometimes forget this, but the DUP was the only major party that is in the executive now who rejected the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah. I think for people of our age, that's a, that's a harder one to take in as well, you know. Yeah. And, but obviously people will say, well, they worked it out at St. Andrews. But at the time, that was seen as a massive shock. And in the years following, that's when, you know, the DEP really started to grow. And some questions can be then brought to, well, did most of unionism ever truly and accept the, the Good Friday Agreement in that regard? Yeah. I did. The, do you think Paisley actually ever did? I, I, I would be questionable about the fact that I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm not sure. It's one we'll, we'll have to keep looking at. And obviously when people yeah. listen, they'll, they'll fire us their comments on what they think. So we would love to hear from you guys and what you really think on that. And then if we look at the DUP now today, obviously the the largest unionist party, and I still think they are the largest party in, in Stormont's. But it's it's been a, to say the last few years have been rocky is a bit of an understatement. They yeah. they've definitely had their problems along the way. I mean, I feel like the was it the was it the twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen election where they they lost so many seats to to kind of the smaller parties. The obviously post like RHI they they really just the the party seemed to be crumbling a wee bit around that time, and then uh, then I feel like. They, with Brexit, I feel like there was kind of a little bit more of a, a coming together within like kind of the unionist uh, vote, which kind of helped them out a wee bit. But then I, even with like the Lucid Talk uh, poll that came out pretty recently, we're seeing that they're kind of going back to dropping points in their in their appeal. It seems to the general population, so I, I find it hard to to like make an accurate because it's just been fluctuating so much. To make like an an accurate prediction for them is like really. Or like to paint like a proper view of how they're how well like they are in a community is quite difficult to to say, I suppose. Yeah, and I think even within the party structures, we're seeing a wee bit of um, movement and yeah. a wee bit of instability. Um, one just has to refer to the end of July there when the executive voted on uh, voted on allowing more powers to the executive. A ten or eleven DUP. MLAs voted against it, which was against the party whip, essentially. Yeah. So, you know, some analysts have read into that as it's a rejection of Arlene Foster's rule and the way she's managed the party recently. And, you know, with the way the last two elections also went for them and, you know, losing the likes of North Belfast to, to Sinn Féin, it's, yeah. you know, there, there, are, there are questions over her head if she is a sufficient leader in these times and is willing to drive the DUP forward. She seemed to also have somewhat some criticism for not being kind of strong enough in her response to to COVID and and not strong enough in her response to to the kind of a story funeral. She I think she people some people expected her to kind of come in and just like blow in a China shot mentality, just uh slay Sinn Fein over it, you know, give them like kind of the the traditional DUP response of just a fully stop cooperating with the Sinn Féin until they give some form of apology but instead it was kind of like a uh, I think she kind of just more watched it and thought she was just going to watch the, the Sinn Féin um, have issues over it 
which didn't really materialize as heavily as we thought it may, maybe would. But uh, yeah, I, I, mean, I think, I think in... she's, made, she's Sorry, generally though, she's generally I would have thought being like quite a outspoken uh, credit critic of Sinn Fein in general, despite that maybe one lapse and in her criticism of them. I don't know. Yeah, well, I also I also think in fairness to her, she's damned if she does criticize and criticize Sinn Féin over the Bobby Story's funeral and damned if she doesn't. Yeah. You know, we've just came off the back of three years of Stormont not running due to the two major parties not being able to work together. And I think both are realistically going, well, you know, we have to work together. And while we can't criticize each other, if we do it too much, what happens then? Yeah. The Stormont... The, assortment feel to operate them at that point and i mean feeling to operate in a pandemic would be i mean it would be a pretty stark example of how Stormont just seems to be completely unreliable in any time of crisis if it fell down i mean it didn't so this is purely us talking just in counterfactual but like if it did fall during that kind of you know period of just like one small crisis of the fact that some, there wasn't social distancing at a funeral, and then the whole thing kind of collapses over during like a pandemic, which would have been, uh, I think, a pure joke if it, if it did like call, cause the whole thing to fall down. Um, yeah, there, there would be serious questions about yeah. its future, and I think, in fairness, there already is questions about its future as a whole. I think pretty clearly. And um, during those three years. Okay, well, I think that about wraps us, wraps us up for uh, today's podcast. I think it was. I think we covered a lot of topics there about the DUP. Um, if you think we've missed anything major, please let us know, and we'll recover them at a later date. Um, we're going to be doing all the main parties, um, going through their manifestos, what they believe, talking about their history, their future, what we think is going to happen next. And yeah, we'll we'll hopefully actually get a few DUP politicians on it sometime, and we'll be able to question them about, about what we brought up. If they'll have us, they'll probably just say these are two, <laughs> two 20 year olds having, you know, having a go at us. But no, not at all. We're, we're here yeah. to hear from all sides in, in Northern Ireland and hear what everybody has to say and think. Yeah. So, yeah, thank, thank you again, everybody, for listening. Thank you for looking at the website. It's, it's you know, for an opening weekend, we, we've had some great success. And I just want to say deep down, thank you so much. For me and Matt, this has been a real. Um, you know, project, a real passion project. And we're both so happy that people are enjoying it and they're finding um, good insights from it. So yeah, I just want to then say, well, thanks for listening. And we'll, we'll talk to you next week.